Ock. Uh, you're seeing that in things like uh, the G7 now setting up its own uh, investment uh, initiative to counter uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Is that is that where we're heading for? Certainly, we see that in so many spaces, not just infrastructure. As you mentioned, we've seen it in tech and, and specifically the regulation of, of, of the tech industry, whether that's data protection, online sales, e-commerce. We see it with digital currencies, uh, health issues as well, especially in the wake of the, the global pandemic. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, this kind of bifurcated industry or industrial policy or regulatory policy. It's the trend. We're obviously getting away from what the organizations like the WTO, or to a lesser extent, APAC, were supposed to achieve. And that's clearly the trend. Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. Down in Australia, the ASX 200 slipping now 0.4%. Uh, same story for the Nikkei 225 in Japan. The Cosby down a little bit more, uh, down 0.6%. Does look like the Hang Seng will make a small gain of about 30 points or so at the Open this morning. Tomorrow's a public holiday in Hong Kong, as you're well aware, so Money Talk will return on Monday with James Ross presenting the show. I'll be back on Tuesday. In the meantime, have a great long weekend. Do please stay tuned to Radio 3. Back chats coming up with Jim Gould and Janice Wong in just a moment. The weather forecast. Mainly cloudy, squally showers and thunderstorms. Maximum temperature is going to be about 30 degrees. Those showers and thunderstorms will continue in the next couple of days and they're going to be heavy at times during the weekend. We do have a standby signal number one in force, also a thunderstorm warning. It's 28 degrees right now, 90% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The American singer R. Kelly has been sentenced to 30 years in jail after a trial in which he was found to have used his position to sexually abuse women and teenage girls. He trafficked women between U.S. states, assisted by members of his entourage, over the course of two decades. One of the prosecutors, Breon Peace, said the Grammy Award-winning performer was a pl- prolific sexual predator. Today, the sentence shows that the witnesses reclaim control over their lives and over their futures. These are voices of mostly black and brown women and children that were heard and believed and for whom justice was finally achieved. The observatory says the standby signal number one will remain in place before noon. Local winds are not expected to strengthen significantly, but the weather will deteriorate over the next couple of days. Gokman Hin is a senior scientific officer at the observatory. The tropical cyclone will move in the general direction towards the coast of western Guangdong in the next couple of days and intensify gradually. Under the influence of the overturned rain bands associated with the tropical cyclone, the local weather will gradually deteriorate with squally showers, thunderstorms, and swells on the 1st of July. Showers will be heavier times over the weekend. And after tropical cyclone making landfall under the influence of an active southerly airstream, there will still be occasional showers this week. Meanwhile, the government says Cathay Pacific's flight CX-845 from New York will be suspended for five days starting from tomorrow. That's because the number of COVID patients on board exceeded the number allowed. 
Overseas, NATO leaders have promised unwavering support for Ukraine at a summit of the alliance in Madrid. They've issued a declaration pledging to step up political and practical backing for Kyiv while condemning Russia's military campaign. Jens Stoltenberg is the NATO chief. President Zelensky made clear that Ukraine relies on our continued support. And our message to him was equally clear. Ukraine can count on us for as long as it takes. Ukraine and Russia have carried out their biggest prisoner exchange since President Putin launched his military campaign. 144 soldiers have been swapped from each side. They include 95 who were captured defending the Azovstal steelworks in the ruined southern port of Mariupol. A court in France has found the only survivor of the group behind the November 2015 Paris attacks guilty of terrorism and murder. Salah Abdeslam has been sentenced to a full life term. Gunmen killed 130 people across the French capital. Sri Lanka's government says it may not be able to secure shipments of petrol for more than three weeks in another major blow to the battered economy. Fuel has almost run out and is being rationed to prioritize supplies for hospitals, public transport and food deliveries. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with me, Janice Wong and Jim Gold. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Tomorrow will be the 25th anniversary of the establishment of the Hong Kong SAR and it will mark the halfway point of the promised 50 years without change under the one country, two systems principle. Security has been beefed up as President Xi Jinping is expected to begin a two-day visit to Hong Kong today for celebrations, marking the SAR's return to the mainland. So at this halfway point, how has one country, two systems been working so far? How will it develop going forward? And will it last well? beyond the initial 50-year time frame. After 9.15 a.m., we'll be speaking to the Chief Executive Officer of the CUHK Medical Centre to look at what lessons Hong Kong can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic. Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us on 233 That's 233 Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Ronnie Tong, an executive council member. And we will also be joined in a moment by Alan Zeman, the chairman of the Lan Kui Fong Group. Good morning, Mr. Tong. Morning. And uh, thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, Mr. Tong, where do you think Hong Kong is right now with regards to one country, two systems? Well, we're at the midway of the so-called 50-year period under which the one country, two systems uh, is to apply to uh, the SAR. Um, this is the midway point, and uh, looking back, I think uh, generally one can say that the past 25 years show that the uh, one country, two systems can really stand up to serious challenges. Um, and I'm talking about really serious challenges uh, like what we saw uh, in 2019 where some refer to the one country, two systems as uh, hanging uh, you know, by its thread. Uh, but we're back. We're back on our feet. And despite uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, we are uh, uh, slowly but surely climbing back to where we were. 
The only difference is that um, some would say, unfortunately, uh, others may think differently, that the democratic movement seems to have uh, met a slow wall and is not progressing at all. And so uh, I think the, the, the big question, or rather there are two big questions that uh, you know, we, we're looking at at this moment. One is what is going to happen in the coming 25 years. And the, the second one is that within those 25 years, do we still have time enough to get back to uh, uh, revisiting the issue of political reform as promised under the uh, basic law? I think those are the uh, perhaps uh, uh, very important uh, issues that we have to look at. I think most other people who are not really interested in politics uh, or political reform would be looking at how to recover and to go beyond our economic uh, uh, progress. Um, the COVID-19 has left us uh, in a very isolated position. Um, some uh, foreign investors have chosen to leave Hong Kong for the time being. Others are holding back their plans to come to Hong Kong to, uh, you know, invest. And, and that is a, also a serious challenge to Hong Kong as the international uh, finance and business center. Uh, traveling industry is uh, really uh, under threat. Um, they are living, you know, day to day, hoping that traveling restrictions somehow would uh, ease somewhat and uh, again slowly climb back to where we were uh, before uh, the onslaught of uh, COVID-19. So generally we are, we are at, a, uh, at, at, a, at a midway house uh, waiting to see how to get on to our journey again. So so, Mr. Tong, you, just now you, you mentioned that there are two questions we need to consider. And one of them is uh, what will happen in the next 25 years. And now looking ahead, Mr. Tong, how do you expect one country, two systems to develop going forward? Well, I think we have now found the uh, solid uh, and logical base on which, uh, you know, um, progress can be built, both economically and politically. Uh, I think 2019 really showed us, uh, it was a wake-up call, I think, I think it showed us that it is meaningless to talk about political reform when there is uh, no stability and no unity in the, uh, in the community at large. Um, I do not regard uh, you know, the, the issue of political reform and national security should be at odds with each other. I can't see how it can be said on any view that political reform and national security would be in conflict. It didn't happen in other countries and it should never happen anywhere. But in 2019, it would appear that it's happening in Hong Kong, which I think is a very, very sad thing. Uh, when we realize that political reform and national security is not at odds with each other, they're not in conflict, and they can go hand in hand, and indeed should go hand in hand, 
then I think, um, you know, the sky's the limit. Uh, we, we can revisit the issue of political reform. Once we found ourselves on a very stable uh, societal environment, uh, and then the one country, two systems is not under threat at all, um, I see no reason why it could not continue beyond 2047. I think the key, the key uh, here uh, is that any system to survive any period of time must be demonstrated not only that it would provide stability uh, and, and safety to the people uh, involved, but also it has to demonstrate its benefit to the nation. If the one country to systems is beneficial to China as a nation, and surely uh, because of that it would be beneficial to the people of Hong Kong, then it would be a good policy, a, a good uh, a system to continue. And, and therefore, I see no reason why uh, there ought to be any uh, structural change to the one country, two systems. And um, recently, actually, a, a top mainland official, Shen Chun Yao, the uh, chairman of the Legislative Affairs Commission of the National People's Congress Standing Committee, he actually said the concept of the 50-year uh, lifespan of uh, one country, two systems was uh, only a symbolic description and uh, there would be no changes to the principle after 2047. Um, Mr. Tong, I mean, like what you just suggested earlier, do, do you think the one country, two systems will last well beyond the initial 50-year time frame? I, I certainly hope that it, it, it will. Uh, I don't disagree with what uh, uh, you know, the, the gentleman said. If, if you look back, uh, the only uh, time when the 50-year period was mentioned was within the basic policy uh, uh, announced by China and, and next to the Joint Declaration. And in the basic law, you would only find uh, the reference to 50-year in Article 5 which says that uh, there should be no change within 50 years. But if you look at the basic law itself, it has no expiry date. You know, it doesn't like a uh, you know, piece of cheese or a carton of milk that has got an expiry date written on it. It, it hasn't. And, where, and when you look at Article 5, it refers to the continuation of the capitalist system and the lifestyle of people of Hong Kong, and, and that in relation to those two aspects, there is this reference to the 50-year uh, period. Uh, not uh, as regards to the rest of the articles of the basic law. Now, uh, I see no reason why the capitalist system in Hong Kong should change. Uh, I think, uh, in fact, uh, our motherland has backed the continuation of our you know, financial system from start to finish, and, and uh, sorry, from, from start to now. Uh, and uh, um, insofar as our lifestyle is concerned, yes, I mean, you know, we do see some changes. I mean, we see the, you know, the, 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 the onslaught of the internet, you know, the, the, the rise of the handphone. Uh, and uh, yes, our lifestyle, you know, that's changed a little bit, but not because of the political system, but because times have changed. So, uh, if you ask me, I don't think we need to amend even Article 5 if we were to go beyond 2047, because it doesn't, it doesn't say the opposite. 
But even if you need to uh, amend Article 5, all you need to do is to delete a reference to the 50-year, and, and, and that will be it. Uh, so um, I think from a constitutional point of view, and also from a political point of view, I uh, have high hopes that uh, the one country, two systems can continue. Mm. Uh, morning, Ronnie Tong. Uh, Jim Gould here. Morning. Uh, talking Hi, about the, uh, the, uh, the financial system, so you mentioned earlier the current difficulties caused uh, by the COVID epidemic. Um, do you think once it's over that we'll be sort of ready to resume full steam ahead? I see no reason. The, the only hesitation is, is you know, I, I know COVID-19 will end. But nobody can tell when uh, it, it can end. Uh, but the, the thing is, we're really running against time here because um, Hong Kong needs to open its doors both to uh, the mainland uh, and also to the world. And we cannot afford to sit on our laurels and, and, and wait for you know the passing of COVID-19, although we are sure that COVID-19 will pass or anything else. But uh, how to balance uh, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the medical protection for people in Hong Kong and, you know, to get on with our economy is a, a, not an easy question. And, and, and it's probably one of the first headaches for the coming administration. All right, uh, let's uh, bring in Alan Zeman, the uh, chairman of the Lang Kwai Fong Group. Uh, good morning and welcome to Backchat, Mr. Zeman. Good morning. morning. Um, Mr. Zeman. Morning, Alan. Hey, morning, Ronnie. How are you? Mr. Zeman, I, I know you've been living in Hong Kong for decades. Uh, what do you think of Hong Kong's development under one country, two systems over the past 25 years? Well, I think uh, basically, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been an experiment that Deng Xiaoping came up with in 1984 and uh, had never been done anywhere else in the world. It took us 25 years to get to this point uh, whereby... Um, we had a lot of problems, uh, chaos, uh, restored order. Uh, you know, we're now in a critical period from stability to prosperity. You know, and so I think that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's proven now with uh, patriots ruling, you know, changing the electoral system and really getting the kinks out of the experiment. I think that uh, the next 25 years will be very, very strong. And I think that Hong Kong uh, has... Uh, you know, as China goes, Hong Kong uh, go, uh, goes, and, and, and basically the strength of China uh, has really propelled Hong Kong into, uh, you know, having one of the strongest stock markets in the world, you know, and, and, and so uh, Hong Kong has derived a lot of benefits uh, from the one country, two systems, obviously. How well do you think Hong Kong is placed to, to maintain its status as an international financial centre? I know I've heard all the naysayers about the, the problems, and obviously COVID, the uh, border restrictions have really hampered Hong Kong. And, they, and I know people love to say this is the end of Hong Kong, but I've been here in 1997 when people said it was the end of Hong Kong. Fortune magazine had a, a, a you know, front page saying that uh, this is it. Uh, you know, but uh, as I said in many times, I've been in this movie many, many times. Uh, 2003, yeah, uh, the 2019 protest, the ending is always the same. And I, I do believe because we, uh, Hong Kong is so important to China, 
you know, the one country, two systems, China is 1.4 billion people. They don't need another 7.5 million people as a Chinese city. They need it to be the super connector between the West and the East and the East and the West. And, and they derive a lot of benefits out of having Hong Kong and as, as one country, two systems. So I think the future, you know, China in the next, my prediction, in the next five, ten years, Hong Kong will be, I mean, China will be number one in the world. As far as trade goes, they're number two right now. And so I think that, uh, you know, again, that Hong Kong goes right along on the coattails uh, of it. And with the Greater Bay Area coming with 84 million people, uh, GDP last year of uh, uh, 1.7 trillion U.S. dollars, you know, the ninth largest GDP in the world. Uh, I think that uh, Hong Kong has great, great future ahead of it. You know, one and a half hour radius by high speed rail with 11 cities. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, so I think that there's so many things going for Hong Kong. I know we have to get through the border, but I'm, I'm very, very uh, convinced that the new administration will really be uh, changing a lot of things. I think the borders will be opening up. They're talking about uh, slowly opening the borders down. We now have Long Ching Mao, Sam Lowe, who uh, will be the health minister. Uh, he's a doctor, very well-recognized around the world, uh, first liver transplant doctor. I've sat on the board of Santorum Hospital with him for four years. He's brilliant, and I really believe he'll be able to handle things in a way that we're, we're, he's very well-respected in China. So I'm putting a lot of faith into him and a lot of faith in the border finally, finally getting opened. And it, it is important because we have a lot of finance. We're an international financial center, which China wants us to be. And uh, we have to have uh, the, the borders open in order for companies to bring executives out. It's been 21 days, 14 days of quarantine. It's been very, very difficult. Maybe seven days. And Mr. Zeman, um, the former chief executive, Si Wadleng, um, he said in a video released yesterday that it's uh, time for Hong Kong to grasp opportunities on the mainland. And uh, you just mentioned the Greater Bay Area. Well, what sort of opportunities are there for Hong Kong in the, the coming uh, 25 years, maybe? Well, you talked about Greater Bay Area, about 84 million people. And so the integration of Hong Kong being the, the international financial center uh, for it, you know, they have the, the ninth largest GDP in the world. And, and, and so they have, uh, um, you know, there's such a huge market there uh, for Hong Kong to be part of that and, and an important part of it because our, our common law system, our independent judiciary is recognized around the world. You know, arbitration center, all this is really, really important. So that's why I do believe that uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the business opportunities will be immense. And companies abroad wanting to be part of that, you know, it will, will propel Hong Kong to be stronger and stronger because of our, our independent judiciary and, and our uh, common law system, All right. which China does not have. All right, Mr. Tong and uh, Mr. Zeman, I guess both of you are in quarantine at the moment to prepare for the 25th anniversary <laughs> celebrations. Yeah. And that's why you have time to come on back chat to talk to us. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> President uh, Xi Jinping, he's expected to begin a two-day visit to Hong Kong today for the celebrations, marking the SAR's return to the mainland. Mr. Tong, in your view, how significant is his visit? I mean, President Xi, he hasn't been to Hong Kong for many years now. I, I think it's highly uh, significant. Uh, you know, the visit of the, the president indicates that, uh, you know, the importance and the solemnity of the return of sovereignty uh, over Hong Kong to our motherland. 
for President Xi to come on such a, a, an important date, I hope it's a peace for the one country, two systems. Mrs. Zeman? I, I agree. I think that uh, the fact that he is coming now, uh, especially with the COVID, it's really the first trip he's made, I think, in three years outside of China, you know, into uh, Hong Kong. It shows the importance that, that he really attributes uh, to having Hong Kong as, as an important part of uh, the, the growth of China. And so I think he'll be delivering a very strong message about, uh, um, you know, one country, two systems, and the benefits in the next 25 years, and, and, and uh, you know, and, and uh, so everybody is looking forward to the speech that he will be giving probably tomorrow and probably some uh, some words today, and, and uh, it, it, it's an important message to the world that uh, he is coming and, and really showing that uh, how, how important Hong Kong is to China. And Mr. Tong, what expectations, what expectations do you have for President Xi's speech? I mean, do you expect him to make it clear how long one country, two systems can last or maybe give a general direction or principle that uh, Hong Kong can work towards? Well, I, I really hope that uh, he will point out the direction, uh, you know, on which we will go uh, in the next 25 years. And if that included a, uh, some kind of reference or indication as to uh, the continuation of country two systems beyond 2047, that would be super, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, I really uh, have no uh, prior uh, uh, indication from anywhere, from all the channels that I've, I've opened to, as to what exactly he's going to say, other than he would say something which would, of course, be of great importance to the people of Hong Kong, you know, in relation to the next 25 years. I certainly hope that he would say something, uh, uh, apart from, uh, you know, how to get on with our economy. I certainly hope that he would say something about our political future, our political reform, and, you know, the state of one country, two systems, and, and whether or not he would continue beyond 2047. And uh, Ronnie Tong, we have a, a new uh, incoming uh, administration um, headed by uh, John Lee. W what do you think uh, the first priorities are going to be there? I think the first priority, no doubt, would be to deal with uh, you know, opening our doors, hopefully, uh, both to China and to the rest of the world. Um, the second most uh, important issue would be you know, the recovery of our economy and uh, associating with uh, continuing opening of our doors to the outside world, uh, we need to strengthen and build on uh, our financial center status. And I think uh, the economy will be uh, of uh, very of great importance to the coming administration. Mm -hmm. Following very close to that will be the housing issue. And I mm -hmm. think everybody in Hong Kong uh, very, very concerned about the lack of progress in relation to housing over the, the past, you know, 10, 15 years. And we've been lagging so much behind that we must do our best uh, and try all avenues to try to recover grounds lost uh, over the, the housing issue. And I, I, I'm very, very glad to see that Kerry Lam, the outgoing uh, chief executive, was able to take rather bold steps, both in relation to the announcement of the Northern Metropolis 
and to the Lantau Reclamation Project. Uh, and I think that without either of these uh, uh, projects, it would be impossible for Hong Kong to catch up on the housing issue. But once those two projects are underway, and uh, we'll, we'll begin to see some easing off of the pressure over housing mm. in the next uh, 10, maybe 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he's promised a, a results based approach to uh, policies and so on. Uh, um, Alan Zeman, do you expect to see uh, progress soon, like new new targets for for new house building and so on? I think, yes, you know, he is result-oriented. That's the first thing that he said in his first uh, press conference with the, with the, with the president. And I believe that uh, that's really something that is very important for him. Uh, he has talked about the two, as Ronnie said, the most important things, the opening of the border, uh, someone coming up with some uh, some model to, to, you know, that that will work for both China and Hong Kong and the international community. And, of course, uh, uh, the housing, which China, his presidency, and I believe in a speech, he will address that as well, the, the housing situation. Every time there is a message coming from up north, it's all about housing to make sure that the previous administration, the future administration realizes all he wants to do is have a better life for the people of Hong Kong. And that has been our biggest problem for the last 25 years, the housing situation that's caused the divide between rich and poor. All right, uh, Mr. Zeman, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Alan Zeman, the chairman of the Lan Kwai Fong Group. And uh, Mr. Tong, I know you'll be staying with us for a bit longer so we can continue our discussion after the news when we will be joined by Dr. Pam Pei Cho, the former vice chairman of the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. And after 9.15, we'll be speaking to the chief executive officer of the CUHK Medical Centre to look at what lessons Hong Kong can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, if you want to ask questions or share just share your views on today's topics. Remember, you can give us our call. Our, our, give us a call. Our number is 233-88266. And a quick look at the weather. The standby signal number one is now in effect. And uh, today is going, going to be mainly cloudy with squally showers and thunderstorms. The top temperature will be around uh, 30 degrees. Right now it's 29 degrees. And the relative humidity is 86%. Shut and people are being urged to work from home. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Jim Gold and me, Janice Wong. Let's return to our discussion on One Country, Two Systems, ahead of tomorrow's 25th anniversary of the establishment of the Hong Kong SAR. Still with us on the line is Executive Council Member Ronnie Tong. And joining us now is Dr. Pam Pei Cho, the former Vice Chairman of the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. And just a reminder, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266 and our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Dr. Pan, good morning. Good morning. And welcome to Backchat. In in the first half of the program, we talked about one country, two systems in general and it's a possible future development. Um, Now let's talk about labour rights. Dr. Pan, in your view, how has it changed over the past 25 years on the one country, two systems? Oh, I think there has been very significant change as far as uh, labor rights are concerned. Now, uh, over these last uh, 25 years, we have seen the introduction of the minimum wage, and also uh, now that uh, this is the 
uh, removal of the so-called the, the offset system right between uh, for the MPF, and uh, also we have uh, uh, now we are going to have gradually uh, in the introduction of uh, say the equalization of the so-called uh, statutory holidays and also the public holidays. So I think the, these are the important changes which affects every. Uh, uh, employee, right? So in the, in the uh, in Hong Kong. So I think these are uh, positive changes. Of course, we would like to see more, uh, say, uh, further changes where we, which improves the lives of the working people, right? But uh, I think we have we we are happy that uh, that things are happening. Right. Yeah, like, like you say, uh, there certainly have been uh, a number of notable changes, positive changes. But uh, um, do you think we're likely to see more efforts to address the the wealth imbalance, the income imbalance? <clears throat> yeah, this is a very important issue. <clears throat> I think that, uh, like uh, many other countries uh, uh, in the in the world, especially the, those uh, uh, developed uh, countries and areas. Uh, we are seeing a widening in the gap between the rich and the poor. I think this is an issue which has to be addressed. Uh, we know that Hong Kong is following a capitalistic system, right? So uh, we are mindful that uh, the, what, what uh, the, the, the measures, right, the uh, social uh, economic uh, uh, policies right, on the mainland, right, should not be sort of uh, uh, transplanted in Hong Kong as such. But nevertheless, I think it is very important to uh, address uh, some of the uh, horrendous uh, disparity right, between the, the rich and the poor. And uh, so I think that um, to continue to, um, say, uh, work on the minimum wage, and secondly, right, to improve the, the income of the, uh, the low-income sector, right, of the community, right, and to... Uh, promote a public awareness right, of uh, equality, right? I think it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. Mm. And uh, certainly, uh, as trade unions, they know we have a role that, uh, that we should, uh, that for us, right, uh, to strive for the welfare of the, of the working class people, for the grassroots people, right? That is to, towards uh, greater social justice. This is what uh, we will continue to do. Bear in mind that the system here in Hong Kong may have a tendency to widen the gap between the rich and the poor. Um, Mr. Tong, um, Dr. Pan here, he's uh, talked about uh, several achievements that have been made over the past uh, 25 years in, in terms of labor rights. In your view, what was the biggest achievement uh, over the past 25 years in terms of labor well, rights? Well, like, like Mr. Pan, uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, a labor position in Hong Kong has changed uh, significantly since the Hanover. Uh, ever since I became a legislator, you know, some 15 years ago, I have made it my, uh, uh, my concern to concentrate on poverty issues and labor issues. Uh, I fought, uh, you know, to the nail for minimum wage. While I was a legislator, I had to convince my own party uh, to support uh, the setting up of minimum wage. I see a lot of tightening of uh, legislation uh, in relation to labor rights, which again is very important. I don't see uh, labor rights uh, or uh, you know issues relating to uh, their uh, well-being 
it's in conflict with the capitalist system. Uh, if you look around in all countries uh, which are practicing the capitalist system, they all have very uh, updated uh, and uh, you know good labor law uh, and uh, policies which uh, would protect you know a very important sector of the community. Uh, I certainly think that the uh, setting up of the minimum wage over the last 25 years is one of the most significant improvements uh, in relation to uh, labor rights and benefits. Um, the uh, abolition, uh, abolition of the uh, set-off in M uh, MDF is, is another very significant uh, 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 progress, uh, and I, I'm very glad that uh, it happened within the administration uh, of Kerry Lam. Uh, I think in future, I, I think there are, there is still a lot of room uh, for of improvement in relation to uh, working environment and the safety of working environment. Uh, we see, uh, you know, a lot of the times that uh, workers uh, got killed, uh, you know, while working uh, in various, uh, you know, labor-intensive, uh, you know, industries all around Hong Kong. And uh, the, the compensation which can be dished out to their families is, you know, quite pitiful. Uh, so I think that, that we really not ought to look at uh, a, a further type of safety legislation in relation to the labour force. Talking about the one country, two systems, so, uh, so, so the mainland is pursuing a, a policy of common prosperity. I mean, do you regard that, uh, Ronnie Tong, as is that purely a socialist uh, concept or could we have a bit of that, a bit more of that no. here in Hong Kong where, where, where capitalist system is mandated? No, I, I don't see that as capitalist systems at all. I, I think this is a, 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 a way to, uh, to to construct a better uh, and, and more just uh, community. Uh, the, the labor sector is a very important sector within our community, without which none of us can enjoy, you know, the, the benefits uh, and the well-being today. Uh, so uh, I, I, I regard it as an equality issue rather than uh, a socialist issue at all. So I, as I say, I don't see any conflict mm. between that and uh, the capitalist system, capitalist system under the one country, two systems. Mm. Mm. Uh, Dr. Pan, what do you think? Uh, I think that uh, uh, under the one country, two systems, I think we have the promise that uh, Hong Kong will maintain its uh, uh, usual way of uh, living. Right? That includes uh, uh, the, the economic system that we have here. Okay, we accept that. Uh, but even under a capitalistic uh, system, we can always strive for a better life and more equality, and especially regarding opportunity right, for people, uh, both uh, rich and poor. So this is something that we should strive at. This will reduce social tension and make our system more viable and uh, prosperous. And Dr. Pan, uh, tomorrow will be the uh, 25th anniversary of the establishment of the Hong Kong SAR. It will mark the halfway point of the promised 50 years without change under the one country, two systems principle. What yes. expectations do you have for the next 25 years? Uh, well, 
I think from what I've heard uh, from the, say the leaders of the of uh, our country, uh, that there's actually no intention to ch- to change the system. Uh, say after say the 50 years, right? This is the initial 50 years of Hong Kong's uh, return uh, re- uh, return to the mainland. So uh, I, I don't think that uh, in the next 25 years there will be major changes. But of course. Uh, things have changed uh, since the introduction of the national security legislations and also the new uh, election system. So these changes will take effect. Now I think that the next 25 years we will see, uh, say, uh, the implementation uh, of these systems and uh, its stabilizing effect on the society of Hong Kong as a whole. So Hong Kong, I would think that over the next 25 years will become more stable and uh, more constructive and prosperous. And uh, in terms of uh, labour rights, uh, what what else do you think, uh, uh, what else would you want to see happen uh, to, to improve labour rights here in, in okay. the next few years? Yeah, I think one problem we have now is uh, very long uh, working hours. So this is something that uh, is affecting uh, each and every employees or workers. So uh, we really like to see, uh, say, uh, to have something done to, say, restrict uh, the working hours so that everyone can have some time uh, to enjoy it for their private use and for their family and friends. Uh, So this will be a very important issue. Mm -hmm. The second is, uh, I think, regarding uh, industrial safety. Uh, we still see uh, quite a high rate of, uh, say, uh, uh, injuries and even death, right? Uh, especially in the construction industry, and uh, there are also some other sectors which uh, we have concerns about. Uh, and we hope that things will uh, will be gradually improved, right? Uh, to 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 cut down on the, uh, say, uh, occupational uh, hazards, right? And uh, injuries. I think these are the two Mm. main areas which I would like to see. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, things are gradually improving as far as uh, labor rights is concerned. So, uh, uh, and uh, I'm happy with the the way things are moving. Uh, Ronnie Tong, I mean, it's true that uh, that we do work long hours, don't we? I mean, I mean in, in some cases, it's a matter of choice. Uh, in other cases, it's a m- matter of necessity. People need uh, the overtime uh, payment and so on. I mean, w- what do you think about the, that notion that's been raised often, and Dr. Pan just mentioned it, about having a, uh, some kind of re- regulation of working hours? Well, I think working hours is a very serious issue because it affects the quality of life of the, the, the person, the worker uh, involved. What is the point of merely being able to pay the rent and, and, and pay for the food on the table, but without the opportunity to spend time with your family? That, that wouldn't be any kind of quality of life uh, to speak of. So I, I think, I, you know, I agree entirely that we should look into this issue. And ultimately, it's a question of money. It's a question of choice, whether people uh, would choose uh, can choose to work overtime uh, if asked, and they would be probably paid properly for the extra time that they spend while working. And that is an issue which I hope ultimately we can strike a balance uh, between you know the paymasters or the bosses and the workers.
All right, uh, all right, Mr. Tong, and we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Executive Council Member Ronnie Tong. And also many thanks to uh, Dr. Pam Pei Cho, former Vice Chairman of the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. It's now 16 minutes past nine, and it's time for us to turn to our final topic today. And that's about lessons that Hong Kong can learn so far from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we now have Dr. Fung Hong on the program. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the CUHK Medical Center. Good morning, Dr. Fung. Good morning. morning. Thanks thanks for joining us on the program. Um, Now, uh, I'm sure many of us still remember the stress that the public hospital system was in during the fifth wave of the COVID pandemic. Um, Many frontline staff were infected and public hospitals were um, so overwhelmed that they didn't have room for new patients. And uh, many patients, as a result, had to sleep outside in the cold. Dr. Fung, I know you're, you're very, very familiar with the public hospital system after working in it for more than a decade. What do you think went wrong? Well, I think uh, it was kind of an unfortunate event because uh, the the outbreak actually came very much like a tsunami. So uh, it came so quickly and so overwhelmed the system. But it basically reflects one very simple thing, and that is the surge capacity in the public hospitals has never been done. If we think of like every winter, we've got a surge program, uh, the bed occupancy rate in public hospitals could go up to 140 uh, it shows that uh, even uh, during the non-pandemic time, we have capacity problems in facing, uh, like the winter surge uh, at the school seat, uh, peak season as well. So, so with this tsunami, kind of important, very quickly overwhelmed system. Uh, uh, and what lessons can be learned from that? What should we be doing to cope with uh, future surges? Lesson that we, we, we I, I, at least on my own reflection, I think it's important uh, in terms of when we look at the system. First, is uh, we really have to uh, sort of get some critical rethink on how we deal with uh, uh, infectious disease outbreaks, even you know in normal uh, days like uh, in dealing with the when we have no pandemic like the winter surge. You know, how can we actually uh, make the system sort of uh, be resilient enough to respond to uh, uh, the searching cases uh, every winter? And then it, that leads to a second point, which is important, uh, which is the chronic problem of our health system, is uh, uh, the development of primary care. And because if we don't have primary care as a good uh, gatekeeper, it's very difficult. And even mild cases, uh, when they swarm into the public hospital, the hospital could not actually bear. The accident emergencies will be all jammed with patients. So I think the, the, the sort of the capacity, the resilience of the back capacity, uh, and for that it's important, but for that it's not just increasing the number of beds, uh, and I think it's more important is how to sort of uh, strengthen the primary care system, how to uh, strengthen the sort of uh, the kind of partnership and linkage between primary care doctors and the hospitals. And uh, the CUHK Medical Centre had uh, previously treated some COVID patients to help relieve the stress of public hospitals. How important would you say cooperation between private and public hospital is when it comes to uh, epidemic control? Uh, it's uh, very important, I think. Uh, it's not just in the treating of uh, COVID patients, but also in the treating of non-COVID patients as well. Uh, when public hospitals are overwhelmed or have to sort of all concentrate their efforts and 
infections, it's important that we don't overlook uh, the other uh, patients, the non-COVID patients. You know, there still be patients suffering from stroke, from cardiac problems, from uh, from cancer, and all that. So, so I think uh, for these, uh, we have to, to take a total picture, you know, take care of all patients, you know, not just the COVID patients. And so the private sector does have a role, uh, especially uh, not not only taking, sharing the burden and taking care of the uh, COVID patients, but also, you know, in particular, also uh, in taking care of the non-COVID patients as well. Looking at the latest figures, uh, Dr. Fong, um, the number of people hospitalised uh, with COVID-19, um, 671 yesterday. Th- that number's been uh, creeping up somewhat in the past few weeks, hasn't it? I mean, that was yesterday's figure. That was 26 more than the day before. There are only three people in intensive care and thankfully uh, no fatalities. But um, um, at that level, uh, 600 or so people in hospital, is that... At, how much of a strain is that putting on the system, or can the system um, easily cope with uh, that number? Uh, from my communication uh, with uh, my colleagues in the public hospitals, it seems at the present moment they are coping fine. And uh, I think the fortunate thing uh, with the current kind of slow creeping up of the cases is that uh, they are all mostly mild cases. So uh, many of the patients they just have to of isolating themselves at home and they don't have to, uh, maybe they don't even have to be sent to the isolation camp mm-hmm. and, uh, or isolation facilities. And, uh, and so uh, even for those who are admitted, they are not really like uh, as severe as the uh, cases need to be stored uh, during the first wave. So, so mortality mm-hmm. actually continues to be very low. So actually there has been also been the international experience as well. Uh, and so uh, by and large, I think, you know, with a lot of these cases, the mild cases, uh, I think that uh, at the present moment, it's actually uh, not, uh, and the system is coping fine. And above, but of course, we have to watch very carefully, you know, whether this kind of a slow creeping up of the number of cases will eventually uh, kind of still uh, 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 causing mm-hmm. a burden to the system. So if they're mild cases, I mean, do they need to be in hospital at all? No, uh, many of the malfeasors don't have to be admitted at all you know, uh, because they, really the symptoms are, are very mild. Uh, and I think uh, for that matter, you know, uh, at the, in the private sector, you know, a lot of the GPs or primary care doctors are starting to uh, go into providing telemedicine services for uh, patients, especially patients with mild symptoms. And I think, and and also they are, the the uh, uh, they are also providing with uh, the antiviral drugs uh, to uh, fight against the virus. So all this can be done uh, uh, in a uh, outside hospital. They don't have to be admitted at all. And I think telemedicine has a lot in terms of uh, providing care and also medical sort of uh, advice to the patient. And uh, right now, we don't know if there will be a sixth COVID wave yet, but uh, if there is one, do you think we are now well equipped for it? Uh, I think we've learned the lesson from the first wave. So uh, uh, from that uh, wave, uh, if, uh, uh, not only the public sector, the uh, private sector is also, is also more geared up uh, in terms of contributing uh, to the public, uh, to uh, the overall uh, fight with the uh, virus. Uh, so as I said, like in the 
a lot of primary care doctors they sort of uh, establish ways, even making use of telemedicine to uh, provide medical consultation for the patients. Uh, they even uh, uh, provide find ways to do telepharmacy as well to, uh, to deliver drugs uh, to patients' homes. So, so that helps uh, in terms of the uh, hospital system. Uh, uh, during the first wave, we actually find out a way to have to mobilize the private sector to help the uh, public hospitals in taking care of the uh, uh, non-COVID patients. Uh, that help. Uh, uh, the government actually had uh, the system of setting up uh, like in particular holding centers uh, for isolation isolating my uh, elderly case patients. And uh, I know the uh, hospital authority uh, and also social welfare department uh, have been working together to make sure that these home uh, centers could be uh, activated you know, within a very short time uh, once we uh, had the number of cases uh, surged uh, or going upwards. So so I think uh, from the experience of the fifth wave, the the system as a whole will, be, will become more responsive uh, and all could respond much faster uh, should another tsunami uh, come. So, of course, I expect it, uh, if the sixth wave comes, you know, if the, the magnitude and the scale will be uh, not as scary as we witnessed or saw during the trip today. And uh, Dr. Feng, earlier you talked about the importance in the uh, cooperation between uh, the private and public hospitals when it comes to epidemic control. But uh, during the fifth wave, uh, we, we didn't really see uh, many private hospitals willing to take COVID patients, uh, even with uh, even those with uh, mild symptoms. Uh, what do you think can help boost this uh, cooperation between the private and public sector? I think the main thing, uh, uh, actually the, the main role is that the even for the government, the government ascribed to the uh, private hospital still helping out with the non-COVID patients. Uh, we have to recognize that uh, uh, some of, or many of the private hospitals, uh, uh, they have old buildings, uh, they design, you know, they don't have like the good isolation facilities. So the design of some of the private hospitals are not sort of here up to sort of providing isolation facilities for COVID patients. Uh, we are fortunate at CHA Medical Center because we are new and uh, uh, during our construction we anticipated we could have a role in the infectious uh, disease outbreak and therefore we actually uh, set up in such a way that we could uh, easily convert uh, at least one two of our wards into negative pressure uh, uh, rooms or facilities. But that's not the case in some of the hospitals, especially private hospitals with old buildings, uh, with uh, old types of uh, air conditioning uh, units like a bank hall uh, units. Uh, these bank hall units are not conducive to and uh, are not ready for uh, real isolating uh, real interesting So I think I think on the whole, you know, I, uh, we uh, during the truth we work out a solution which uh, is private hospitals, even if they could not take care of the COVID patients, they could actually work together with the, or in partnership with the public hospitals to take care of the non-COVID patients. And I said earlier on, that's equally important, you know, we don't just focus on the COVID, you know, because uh, there's still a lot of people, you know, uh, that require a medical treatment, uh, either from heart conditions, from stroke conditions, from cancer conditions, from, you know, 
and anything we can learn from the vaccination program because uh, the, there are still fairly large number of uh, elderly people um, over 80s who haven't been vaccinated yes indeed uh, the number the percentage of people that had uh, already got that had uh, uh, that had taken three doses of vaccines i think it still has still to be improved it's, uh, it's still less than 70 percent it's only 60 odd percent so so that is still a sort of a gap you know that we need to fill i think we should continue our efforts to boost that up uh, uh, and i hope that uh, this super uh, apparent uh, relatively low percentage of uh, people uh, taking the uh, third dose it just reflected maybe a time gap between the second dose and the third dose uh, uh, but uh, eventually we should be to sort of uh, uh, have uh, you know, the people taking three doses of vaccine reaching like the 90% I think all right, uh, Dr. Fung, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Fung Hong, the Chief Executive Officer of the CUHK Medical Center. And uh, now here's the weather before we go. The standby signal number one is now in effect. Today is going to be mainly cloudy with squally showers and thunderstorms. The top temperature will be around 30 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh easterlies, strong offshore and on high ground later. And the outlook, squally showers and thunderstorms in the next couple of days. Strong winds tomorrow. And uh, showers will be heavy at times over the weekend. Right now it's 28 degrees, relative humidity 87%. Take a happy ride with Joy Your Card. Just tap and feel the joy of getting around. Hey, pals over 65, you must apply for a Joy You Card in phases by the end of 2023. Your current octopus will not be covered under the $2 scheme in future. Hong Kong residents born in 1955 must apply for a Joy You Card in July via Octopus app or by post. For details, visit the Joy You Card website or call 3147 1388. It's 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Thank you. The observatory says the standby signal number one will remain in place before 6 p.m. today. Local winds are not expected to strengthen significantly, but the weather will deteriorate over the next couple of days. Health officials say one person tested positive and one result was indeterminate during an overnight lockdown of blocks.